Well, good morning. We are in a series on the famous Beatitudes of Jesus Christ. And they are worthy of all the attention we can give them. Because according to Jesus, these eight simple statements are snapshots of the best life, the blessed life, uh, the happiest life. They are snapshots of what a, a life totally transformed by Jesus Christ looks like. And that's important, and actually we, we struggle with some of these beatitudes because the world tells us something very different. The world tells us the best life, the happiest life, is the problem-free, carefree life, or the glamorous life, you know, the, the party life, the, the nightlife, uh, you, whatever life. But here, in these eight statements, uh, Jesus it expresses how silly that is. And in fact tells us that the happiest life has nothing to do with our circumstances, nothing to do with our possessions, nothing to do uh, with our appearance, but everything to do with who we are in Him, who we are in Christ. And the inside out, life-changing grace that we are experiencing day in and day out in the gospel because of what Jesus Christ has done. Now let me say it a little differently. One of the ways to think of these beatitudes is that these beatitudes are eight snapshots of what spiritual heroes look like. Kingdom of God heroes. Ordinary people who have been extraordinarily transformed by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Uh, people who live under the administration, aligned with the administration of Jesus. But let's be honest. And here I'm kind of getting at why we read these and are familiar with these, but why we struggle with letting these mark us like they should. In all honesty, it's hard for us to believe in an invisible God. It's hard. When I read um, something in Paul Tripp a, a couple of years ago where he made that statement, I immediately thought, yep, that's me and that's everybody I know. It's hard for us to believe in an invisible God. Uh, the people around you, your, your neighbors, your coworkers, uh, the people all around us in the world, man, uh, they have their cars, they have their houses, they have their hobbies, they have their stuff. It's visible stuff. But you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, well, we believe in an invisible God. And that's the defining reality of our lives, and that's hard. It's hard for us, even in the church, not to give God just a few pieces of our lives and to retain most of it for ourselves. I mean, God is invisible, that's hard. It's hard for us not to reduce our approach to the kingdom of God, to following Jesus, to just a circumstantial, occasional thing. You know, I'll go to church once every six weeks when it's convenient. It's hard because we forget that we have this tendency to forget. We have this tendency to day in and day out to forget God, to get pressed by what is visible. 
And we forget that we need uh, the regular uh, steady intake of God's Word and the corporate worship experience to remind us of the things that really matter, the first things. It's hard to believe in an invisible God. It's hard to, uh, to believe that we are functionally under new management. It's hard to believe, as the Bible tells us, as Jesus has told us, that every single day of our lives is a battle, a spiritual battle for the allegiance of our heart. And I'm a pastor and I should know better, but let me just describe that battle for you, me. A couple nights ago, Wednesday night this week, we took our missionary kids, uh, their two kids, our uh, two grandkids, uh, to the airport, put them on a plane. They're heading back to the mission field in Asia, going to a difficult, dark uh, part of the world where they've been for the last three years. They've been home. Uh, my daughter had a baby. Now they're, they're going back, and we put them on a plane. And I have raised my kids to live like this, to be flat out, sold out, full out, go for broke for Jesus Christ. But here I am at the international terminal at O'Hare Airport. It's Wednesday night. And I am focused on my kids' suitcases. And I have a couple conflicting thoughts. One is that they have reduced basically their life to five or six suitcases. And the second thought is I'm not so sure I feel good about that. And I'm a pastor. And I have, as I've said, given everything that our kids might go for broke for Jesus Christ. And here, so right before me at the International Terminal of Oil Airport on Wednesday night, my kids are living out the Beatitudes, man. They're demonstrating what the best life, the happiest life, according to Jesus Christ is. They're returning to the mission field, and I am focused on their suitcases. And, I, and I'm struggling. I'm struggling with that. And I'm, I'm thinking, they don't have a car, they don't have a house, they don't have a backyard, and they're about to go back to a former Soviet block apartment complex and this apartment that they live in. And I'm like... Really? These eight Beatitudes are arguably some of the most important, some of the most famous statements ever uttered in all of history. But sometimes it's hard to believe in an invisible God even when you're a pastor. And it was for me, in that moment, saying goodbye to my kids. And so here we are a few days later, and it's Sunday morning. And now we come to the sixth, the beatitude. And one of the things I so love about this beatitude is it speaks to me. It speaks to each and every one of us because this beatitude gets at 
what we need to be, what we need to do in order to recover from this addiction to the, to the visible. So grab your Bibles. If you have a Bible, turn to the Gospel of Matthew, the very first book of the New Testament. And the Beatitudes are found on the front end of the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to look, as I said, at the 6th. It's found in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8. We're going to put it on the screen. 11 words, amazing, amazing words of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now, do you see it? Do you see the key that Jesus reveals to overcoming um, your addiction, my addiction? To living according to what we can see, living according to the visible? What Jesus says in this beatitude, the key is, is winning the battle for our hearts. Because it's what will enable you to see God. Now, there's an assumption going on here on the part of our Lord. The assumption is that the big league, the major league battle in life is not a battle with the things outside us. It's a battle with the things that rage inside us. It's a battle for the control of the human heart. And there will be no victory, frankly, there will be no peace, there will be no happiness, there, uh, there uh, will be no resolution with all the smaller battles you and I have regularly in life. I, I, I mean, battles with people, battles with relationships, battles with work, battles with money, battles with temptation, battles with self-pity, anxiety, worry. There will be no resolution in all those hundreds and thousands of battles until you and I fight and fight and overcome the battle, the biggest battle in life, the battle for the control of the human heart, your heart, my heart. And Jesus is inviting us in this beatitude to take up arms and to do battle. And so what I want to do as we talk about Jesus-centered purity is not so much pound away at impurity, I'm not going to take that approach today. Rather, what I want to do is I want to talk about what Jesus is getting at in, in light of this battle. And I, I want to offer you a, a definition of purity in heart. And then I want to shift and I want to talk about some of the reasons we struggle with this. And I want to do that in describing two fundamental identities we as Christians must constantly keep before us if we're going to overcome in this battle. And then because this is so important and because it, uh, the purity of heart can look so differently, I want to conclude by looking at what it looks like, looking at some of the characteristics, actually four. So I'm going to give you one definition, two identities, and four characteristics of this amazing, amazing statement. So let's start with the definition. Well, what is purity in heart? Well, let's start with the word heart. The word heart in the Bible, the, the word heart in the ancient Near Eastern uh, biblical uh, mindset wasn't so much a, a reference to a part of you, an organ in you, as it is a metaphor for all of you. So the heart in the Bible is the center of personhood. 
including the mind, including the emotions, and, and, and the will. And according to the Bible, God has made us to live out of the heart. Not out of our circumstances, not out of our possessions, but out of the heart. And therefore, the heart in God's word is the causal core of personhood. But what's interesting is that right before the word heart, Jesus inserts another word in this beatitude. And it's not the word soft or warm. I mean, today we would much prefer if Jesus had said, blessed are the soft-hearted, or the warm-hearted, or or, or the big-hearted. But Jesus doesn't. Jesus, in language that today would be highly politically incorrect, inserts the word pure. Blessed are the pure in heart. And and, and today, frankly, we struggle with this because today we value acceptance over absolutes, tolerance over over truth. But when Jesus puts all that together and says, blessed are the pure in heart, Jesus is saying they're all equal, all equally important. Because purity in the Bible really has uh, two essences. Uh, One is uh, purity sometimes refers to sinlessness, And sometimes purity refers to being undivided. So you have the sinless piece and this undivided piece. So for example, purity in the Bible means you and I are clean morally, spiritually. But it also means we cohere at the center of our lives. There's a wholeness, there's a... uh, integrity, there's a lack of fragmentation or compartmentalization. We are undivided. James talks about not being double-minded. All that is bound up in these two words, pure in heart. Blessed are the, the pure in heart. So here's the definition. What does it mean to be pure in heart? It means you are undivided in your devotion to Jesus Christ. Purity of heart is undivided devotion to Christ. And I I wanted to keep that short because I I, I want you to be able to remember that. What does it mean for me, Lord, to be pure in heart? It means, man, you're undivided in your devotion, your passion for Jesus Christ. It affects every area of your life. In other words, every single area. You're not fragmented. You don't have this closet here. So it impacts your morals and your mind. Your, your relationships and your reactions. What you do during the weekdays, what you do on the, on the weekends. Your priorities on the one hand, your passions on the other. And it means whether you're in traffic or whether you're in the middle of a, a, a disagreement. You, you are a person who is able to pull back and, and, and deny what you desire in the anger of that moment in order to do what is right. It means whether you're discouraged, whether you feel unappreciated, whether you feel lonely, whether you feel isolated, whether you feel like the kingdom of God is passing you by and you're just feeling really crummy. It means you're still a worshiper. You still love to worship Jesus Christ because you know at the core of your being that his grace and his grace alone is the only antidote you have to your tendency to self-pity. 
It's what delivers us. So what is purity of heart? Jesus begins. Uh, it's this, uh, man, it's this devotion. It's uh, not fragmented. It's not compartmentalized. Our lives aren't all over the place. But over and above everything we do, in and through everything we do, we are people that are devoted to Jesus Christ. All right, but let me go on. Because that sounds good, but boy, when push comes to shove, we really struggle with this. We will look at this and say, purity of heart? No way. Me? And so it causes us to kind of dismiss Jesus' teaching because it seems to us just impossible. And on the one hand, it is impossible. We will never, this side of heaven, live a perfectly pure life. But Jesus is, is giving us a goal. Jesus is flashing something before us, giving us a picture of what the best life, the happiest life really looks like. And so Jesus is assuming a couple of things. And I want to suggest to you that for us to um, make some progress in our war, in our struggle with purity of heart, we must recover and continually keep before us Two biblical identities that are true of every single follower of Jesus Christ. So in other words, what I am saying is not only do we have a heart problem, but the reason we have a heart problem is we have an identity problem. And we are quick to lose sight of our identities according to God's word. Now what is your identity? Your identity is how you view yourself. It's formed over time by what people think about you, the family of origin, what God has done in your life, all of those things. So as a result, your identity is how you view yourself. And it could be several identities depending on the, what's going on um, at a normal uh, point in life. But let me say this, healthy people spiritually, healthy people, people who are overcoming in this battle for the purity of heart, this Jesus-centered purity, Hold both of these two identities I'm about to explain in tension. Hold them equally. They don't forget the one at the expense of the other, and they don't lose sight of both. And by the way, let me just say, if you are here today and you're not sure where you are uh, with Jesus or where you are with this thing called Christianity, and maybe God is speaking to you and you, you want to come to Christ or you sense God is drawing you to Christ, which uh, the spirit of the living God is in a room like this. He's doing that with some of you right now. These two identities that I'm about to unpack will change your life forever if you embrace them. Number one. According to God's word, we must, we must keep before us that you are a sinner. I am a sinner. And we will always struggle with sin until we're in the presence of Jesus. So the first step to purity of heart, paradoxically, is realizing that our hearts aren't pure. That because of our sinful fallen nature, uh, there's an impurity in, in our lives. It's like a, a, a current in the, the stream in the river of our lives. Uh, you know, yeah, we're alive in, in Jesus Christ, but there's this chronic residue of sin. And so as a result, our, our, our tendency in the flesh is to be more lawbreaker than law keeper. Now, why does this matter? Why do I say this? Why is it important that you as a follower of Jesus Christ understand that one of your fundamental identities according to God's word is you are a sinner? Because if you minimize sin in the press of life, 
you will minimize your vulnerability to the temptation to forget God. Uh, you will underweight, you will underestimate your own potential for rebellion in any given situation. And while you will find in your life you will be easily angered at the offenses of others, you will tend to give yourself a free pass. You see, the reason this is so important is because of one of the reasons for chronic spiritual failure in our lives is we don't approach situations with humility. Uh, you know, we're busy, we got stuff going on, we think we can do it, been there, there, done that. So we just go into it and, and then all of a sudden there's attitudes and there's words and there's thoughts and we leak, it's sin. Look at how the great apostle Paul expresses this in these autobiographical statements. Paul says, for I know that the good, that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, what's behind this is an incredible theological debate. Because some people look at these words of Paul and say, these words are so dark, and Paul's conflict is, with sin is so great that Paul has to be talking about his life before he came to Christ. And I want to say to you, that is incorrect. Paul is describing his battle with sin as a believer. Now, there's all sorts of reasons I won't bore you for that, but look at what Paul says in the next chapter, Romans chapter 8, where he says the same thing essentially differently. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. But if you live according to the flesh, you will die. In other words, if you don't engage the battle and overcome in the battle, but if this, by the Spirit you put to death, now notice he calls them the misdeeds of the body, sin. You will live. So Paul gets the, the incredible apostle Paul, this guy God used in incredible ways, understands his identity before God. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm going to struggle with sin. My boat leaks. And so he doesn't minimize it. But let me go on. There's a second identity. And that is, if you know Jesus Christ according to the word of God, you are a child of grace in Jesus Christ, because of the work of Jesus Christ. I mean, amazing grace. We've been singing about it. Now, these identities are important because on the one hand, we tend to minimize our sin, but on the other hand, many of us struggle because we minimize God's daily rescuing grace. We minimize the forgiveness, the righteousness, the new life we enjoy in Jesus Christ. So identity number one means you and I are worse than we think. And I can be sending my kids to Asia and I'm struggling with the fact that they don't have more possessions. I mean, how stupid is that? Uh, but I, I, identity number two means things in Jesus Christ are much better, much, much better than we could possibly uh, imagine. Now, now, those of you that, that struggle with worry and anxiety... Uh, discouragement, uh, uh, depression. Uh, let me say to you, while it's vital that you understand or, or you accept your identity as a sinner, 
Please, please hear me. That's not sufficient. It's not sufficient to carry through your life. Because you must look away from yourself and you must continually look to Jesus and the wonder of his love and the righteousness he has won for you and the unstoppable grace that you enjoy, the security you enjoy because Jesus Christ died on the cross in your place for your sins. And you must continually remind yourself that in this grace, in this identity as a child of God, that life ultimately isn't a function of what you do, it's a function of what Jesus has already done. And so the best life continues to let that reality wash over it. And your great challenge in life is to, to acknowledge that on the one hand you're a sinner, but on the other hand, man, I have been forgiven and this is the best thing. I am a new creation in Christ. Look at how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. A little statement, potent, potent statement. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if you have come to Christ, he, she is a new creation. Not maybe, not halfway, but completely and totally a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come, Jesus has come, and the decimated old kingdom of yours is being replaced by a perfect king, a perfect kingdom that one day you will see visibly in glory. And Paul is saying, let that reality wash over you. Man, you get up in the morning, I'm a new creation. Jesus is present in my life. The Holy Spirit is going to work in my life. He has made everything new. I wonder what Jesus Christ is going to do today. So there are these two realities, and we live with the tension. On the one hand, I leak. On the other hand, God is saving me. God, the Spirit is empowering me, and I have this forgiveness, this incredible forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Now, the reason I mention that is our struggle with purity is in part because we're identity amnesiacs. And we forget what the Bible tells us about ourselves. And this dual biblical identity that's true of every single one of us that know Jesus Christ is key to breaking the power, the, the tyranny of the evil inside you that magnetizes you to the evil external to you. So when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, he's talking about a life that is wildly devoted to Jesus Christ. He's talking not about a perfect life, but a life that lives with this tension between the fact that I'm sinful on the one hand and I'm forgiven on the other, and, and grace is more than sufficient. And I could spend a lot of time today lining out, giving lists of do this, don't do that, all of that. But, but that's not what we need. That is not what I need. Because my battle is that sometimes it's really hard functionally for me to believe in a God I can't see. And the same is true with you. So what do I do? I keep the goal before me. The goal is this wild devotion to Jesus Christ. The realities are the rails that keep me moving down that road. And now what I want to do is give you a couple of pictures of what that looks like. So what does it mean to live a life today? I mean 2015 when summer is sometime going to come. We take that by faith. Number one, this purity of heart means um, 
you have a heart that, that seeks God. And uh, for those of you taking notes, seriously seeks God. You, you are a person um, that, that seeks God. Look at how Jesus will say this in the next chapter as he's working his way through the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. In other words, Matthew 6.33 explains Matthew 5.8. What does it mean to be pure in heart? Well, it means you are a person that over and above everything else, in and through everything else, all the different things you got going on, you're working 60, 70 hours a week, you got this, you got that with your family, all of that, you are seeking Jesus Christ first. You are a person that seeks God. And so Jesus explains, he unpacks some of this in the next chapter. People who are pure in heart are people that give themselves to knowing, glorifying, and honoring God. Now let me go back to the beginning. Let me go back right to the edge, to the very beginning of the Bible. The first four words of the Bible are, in the beginning Okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Maybe God? Partly God? In the beginning, God. First four words of the Bible. Some suggest those are the four most important words in all of God's word. Why? Because they describe how we are to think about life, the universe, God, ourselves, and because nothing is less awkward, nothing is less intuitive and natural for us than to live our lives for the glory of another we cannot see. So the Bible begins, in the beginning, God. And these four words tell us God was on site before construction began. And everything that was constructed was for his purposes in the beginning, God. And therefore, all things belong to him. And therefore, you and I belong to him. And therefore, our great role and privilege in life is to live in a way that honors him and glorifies him and seeks to know him. And so in the world around us today, while everybody else is seeking pleasure and seeking fun and seeking wealth and seeking power, seeking fame or, 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 or seeking whatever, you and I, in and through it all, man, we give ourselves to seeking God. We seek to honor God because in the beginning, God. Let me go on. Number two, purity of heart is a heart that resists sin, resists temptation, fights it, fights it, battles it. One of my favorite characters in the Bible is the Old Testament character, Joseph. I love this account in Joseph's life from Genesis 39. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome, and you know what I usually say at this point? I say, just like me. <laughs> Rhonda wants me to say that. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he is entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you happen to be his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing 
and sin against God. And though she pressed and though she pulled and though she grabbed and although she moved and came after him full bore, he refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her. Now, if you know the story of Joseph way back in, in the book of Genesis, this is remarkable. I mean, the guy's sold into slavery, um, ends up in prison. He is sold and betrayed by his brothers, cut off from his family. And he's probably a teenager. And I say all this because if anybody by rights had the right to be mad at God, it was young Joseph. He does nothing wrong and he wakes up one day and he's in this rat hole of an Egyptian prison. If anyone could have said to himself, you know, I'm, I'm just really discouraged. I kind of feel sorry for myself, and man, I, I just need to express it. And frankly, it's hard to believe in an invisible God. She wants to sleep with me, I'm going to sleep with her. Uh, by rights, if anybody should have capitulated, it was Joseph, but he doesn't. Uh, now, let's go back to the first slide. I want you to see what in the Bible are the first three words of verse 8. They are the um, last two words of the fourth line. The three wa- words are, but he refused. He resisted. He said no. Now, let me give you a definition of virtue. Virtue, as we see here, is the ability to delay gratification. It's it's the ability to resist. It's the ability to refuse. It's the ability to say no. But there's a deeper definition of virtue that emerges from the Bible and from this account with Joseph. Let's go to the next slide. And it is... um, uh, begins with this question in the third line. Notice this theological statement stated as a question. Joseph says, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? In other words, virtue, according to Joseph, isn't just merely delaying gratification. It's the unwillingness to violate the holiness, the character of God. Do you see this? It's a vertical thing. Incredible. Uh, just an incredible statement by, uh, on the part of this young man. Uh, I refuse to violate the holiness of God. I'm not going to throw this thing in God's face. Yeah, I've been in prison for these years. I've been cut off from my family. My life has been horrible, but my God is holy. The key to overcoming temptation isn't ultimately something you do. It's something you believe It's a vision thing. It's this deep conviction about who your God is because you are a man, you are a woman, you are a student that knows the living God. So purity of heart means you resist sin. And resisting sin demands that you see God as holy. I've said it before. Your vision of God is the most important thing about you right now. It will be the most important thing about you in two hours. It will be the most important thing about you tomorrow morning. It will be the most important thing about you in 20 years. Your vision of God is the most important thing about you. And what we see with Joseph is it's fundamental to purity of heart. What is purity of heart? It's the ability to resist sin. 
Where does that come from? It comes from our vision of God. Let me go on to number three. Purity of heart is a heart that confesses sin. Uh, and then it, it seeks change. There's this confession piece and this change piece. Uh, David, aftermath of his adultery, his murder, David does something very few leaders, certainly politicians do. David completely owns it. He confesses it, and he turns from it, and he seeks change. And as a matter of fact, he goes public with it. He goes viral with it, we would say today, by recording it in a couple of psalms. Look at this one verse of his confession from Psalm 51. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So uh, you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. So here is the great king, arguably one of the greatest kings ever confessing his sin and then recording it for the whole world to see. Incredible. But he doesn't stop there. Look at what he says a few verses later in verse 10. He goes on and he says, create in me a pure heart, O God. A, a, a pure heart. Now, now, Jesus in the Beatitude says, blessed are the pure in heart. David has just atrociously sinned. He owns it. He confesses it. And he asks God to renew his heart, to create a, a pure heart in him all over again. So sin, now hear me in this. Sin is always a matter of the heart before it's a matter of our behavior. Sin is a matter of your heart before it's a matter of your behavior. And purity of heart, according to God's word, isn't a perfect heart. That's impossible. We're sinful. But it's a humble heart that continually, regularly confesses sin. And then as you confess your sin, you plead for renewed purity. Man, I talk to God like this daily. I'm speaking personally. Create in me a clean heart. And there can be no purity of heart about continual ongoing confession because there is no heart without sin. Uh, but confession that doesn't seek a renewed heart is frankly not genuine repentance. It's false repentance. So if sin is your greatest problem, and it is, it's my greatest problem, confession and, and repentance is seeking of the renewed heart, creating me a, a pure heart. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart. Uh, those are your greatest allies. Because change, transformation, those of you that are interested in change theory, Change in the Bible is always a function of looking away from yourself to another, Jesus Christ. And what I love about the way David slips from verse 4 to verse 10 in Psalm 51 is David ends up praying, oh God, create in me a clean heart. And he's taking the eyes off himself, off his tragedy, off his sin, off his adultery and murder, and he's fixing his eyes on Jesus. Change, the biblical sort of change, is always a function of looking to another. As a matter of fact, Ed Welch, in you know, one of my favorite books on this subject, a book entitled Addictions, says for every one look at yourself, take 10 looks to Jesus. How do you overcome addictions? Every look at yourself, take 10 looks to Jesus. Number four, 
Purity of heart is a heart that submits to God. It submits to God. A purity of heart is nurtured in the soil of submission, this, this willingness to place ourselves under the authority of the king of kings. And when the angel comes to Mary, the about-to-be mother of Jesus in, in Luke chapter 1, and announces that uh, uh, she is going to have a baby, that, that she is pregnant, and that pregnancy has been engineered by the Holy Spirit. Um, Mary may be a teenager, but Mary knows what the social implications of that are, that she is going to be seen as now having an illegitimate child. She's going to be seen as a, a, a social misfit, an outcast of her uh, Jewish community. Mary, Mary gets that. What does Mary say? Look at this one statement. I'm the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. You want to know what biblical submission is? It's saying to God, I'm your servant. Have your way with me. It's saying, yes, sir, that's Mary. And Mary, uh, for my money, is one of the greatest illustrations of submission in all of the Bible. That's purity of heart. It's a submissive heart. Now, I, I could go on, I, I, I could talk about idolatry, I could talk about a bunch of different things, but I just want you to understand that according to our beatitude, Jesus Christ is saying, if you get your heart right, you get happiness right. But the only way you can get your heart right is by looking to Jesus. So the requirement becomes the reward. Let's pray. Father, I, I, I read a statement like this, and I'm like, whoa. And we all react this way. We all desperately need you to work in our lives to give us the grace to be people that are moving down this road toward purity of heart. Would you do that, that you might be honored and exalted in our lives? And now, Father, as we turn to worship, we ask that you would continue to speak to us. You would drive your word. You would drive these truths home. For Jesus' sake, amen.